In the summer of 1977, two young, unknown American actors traveled to Austria and Germany to shoot a television miniseries for NBC. The title of that show? Holocaust. The actors? Meryl Streep and James Woods. There was a moment where we were literally standing in the gas chamber pot of Mauthausen, Meryl and I, just alone. And she said, I, I wonder if we'll go to hell. I said, what? She said, well, we're doing a television show about the Holocaust. And when you're here, you think, how could anything ever aspire to express the horror that took place here? I said, I agree with you. On the other hand, if there's one person who doesn't know what happened here, and we give them an experience that piques his or her interest in the history of this place to learn more, then it will have been worth all of it, won't it? Turns out, it was worth it in a huge way, because about a year and a half later, Holocaust aired on German TV and pretty much changed everything. Showing this miniseries Holocaust in Germany in the year 79, was a real turning point from the point of view of the awareness of the general public to the fate of the Jews during the Second World War. Welcome to On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. I'm your host, Jonathan Gall, and today we're talking about how one Hollywood product in English pretty much forced the entire country of West Germany to look in the mirror, some would say for the first time since the end of the Second World War, and come to terms with the crimes of the past. We're going to tell the story in three parts. Act one, the show. I'm going to try and get you some new identity papers. Inga. Then we can move somewhere else where they don't know us. Bremen, Hamburg, Inga. then you can work. Inga, you're dreaming. It is the same all over Germany. In the late 1970s, TV miniseries in the historical drama genre were in demand following the incredible success of Roots about African slavery in America. One of the directors of that project, Marvin J. Chomsky, was then hired to direct a teleplay titled Holocaust, the Story of the Family Weiss by Jewish-American writer Gerald Green. Speaking to us on Zoom from California about 45 years later, James Woods remembers being blown away by the script. For any, any of your listeners who haven't ever seen the Holocaust miniseries, I, I wholeheartedly recommend it because it was amazing for a TV series that it, it was so educational, really. But in the, not in any, you know, eat your vegetables or good for you kind of way. It's so educational about, you know, the Bonsai Conference and uh, Bobby Yar and uh, all these signposts along the way. And Roots had just a huge success. But I said, you know, it's a miniseries about the Holocaust. I don't know if people will embrace it or if they'll be, you know, it was at the time a very risky venture to do this very sad, obviously very powerful but tragic story um but you know miniseries have been done so we did it the show followed the story of a fictional jewish family from berlin the weiss family a successful doctor his wife and children as well as a german family led by an unemployed lawyer who is initially apolitical even sympathetic to the jews dr weiss treats his own wife but then gets a job with the ss and gradually climbs the ranks of the nazi killing machine 
completely adopting their worldview. James Woods played Carl Weiss, the doctor's son, and Meryl Streep played Inga, his beautiful new wife, a Gentile from a middle-class Christian family. Please, they asked for Carl. <gasps> you should have warned us! It's no use, they're all over the neighborhood. Police, brown shirts. You could have lied! We could have been arrested for hiding one of them. Over four hour-long episodes, Holocaust depicts key events from 1935 to 1945. We see Kristallnacht, or the November pogrom, deportation, the construction of the ghettos, and later the death camps, the gas chambers. Wise, Carl? Yes? You have ten minutes to pack a bag and come with us. What has he done? Why are you taking him? Routine questioning. No, no, no. What is his crime? What has he done? Who knows? I follow orders. Almost all of the Jewish characters we meet are killed along the way. Karl, who is an artist, eventually finds himself in Theresienstadt, the model ghetto. In one crucial scene set in a concentration camp, the Nazis have hung him by his wrists. James Woods tells us that real survivors of the camps were on set with them as advisors. Some also acted on screen. He had been tortured that way. So he told me, he said, this is what it feels like. This is how your breathing is. You literally just, you pray to die. He said, I said, you're trying to survive it. He said, you want to die. You pray that someone will come up and put a bullet through your head. Inga. Inga. Easy, Weiss. Don't waste breath. I want to tell them. You win. You can do anything you want to me. Kill me. Listen, Wise. I'm no religious man, but I heard a rabbi say the day before we were arrested, every one of us who lives is a sanctification. I don't want to live. He helped me. They both said, you want to be non-existent in the camp so that you can survive. If they can't see you, they can't kill you. So... I always try to make myself as small as possible. Much of the filming took place in Mauthausen, a concentration camp in Upper Austria that remained pretty much intact. The relocation helped the filmmakers stage the scenes of the Weiss family members' murder in Auschwitz. A Spanish revolutionary named Carlos was himself imprisoned at Mauthausen during the war and later came back to serve as a guide there, joined the film crew when they recreated some of the most horrific scenes. And the director was saying, okay, we'll follow Fritz and Rosemary as they go into the chamber. And, you know, people are working, so they're trying to get the shot set up. And then we'll go on to Ian home and we'll bring him over. And as he is explained, as David Warner, whoever the actor was, explained how the ovens work, the cameras will go in and the ovens will light up. And I was standing next to Carlos and I will never forget this moment. And he said, uh, how do I get their attention? And I said, I can do it, Carlos. What, what, what do you need? He said, could, could you just uh, get their attention? I said, sure. I said, uh, guys, can you hold on for a second? He said, gentlemen, I, just before you light the ovens, please remember they're the, con- the consecrated graves of 120,000 people. And everybody just stopped cold and went, oh, my God, what are we, do- what are we doing? You know, I mean, they, in the process of making the film and the work, they just didn't think. It was, okay, how do you, you know, it just like the most obvious thing had skipped. So to their credit, 
And to NBC's credit, I have to say, they said, look, we're shutting down production. And they rebuilt a soundstage to mimic where we were, did it, and tore it back down. To not use the real ovens. It, it was okay to use it because they wanted to use the real place, but they weren't going to light the oven because yes. this was a sacred burial ground. You know? Wow. When Holocaust first aired, there were those who accused the show of being simplistic, of trivializing the horrors of the Holocaust, and also of being historically inaccurate. This criticism was shared by researchers and Holocaust survivors alike, and it carries until today. However, despite its inaccuracies, there is no doubt that this was an important show. Now, here's some Hollywood gossip for you movie buffs. Meryl Streep at the time was in a relationship with the actor John Cazale, Fredo from The Godfather. He was very ill then. In fact, Streep later said that her entire paycheck from Holocaust went towards her partner's medical bills. John was doing Deer Hunter and was dying of cancer. And Meryl was desperate to get home to him. So she was just racked with agony while she was making the series. So, of course, anytime she had, like we all did, some big emotional scene, and there were a lot of them, it was so heightened by her personal experience at the time. And in the character of, of, in this miniseries is a woman whose husband is away from her. The re- resonance between her personal experience and the experience of having your husband be in the camps. And we worked very well together and we were very fired up as young actors. If you want to know what heaven is, anything outside of family or good health or all the great things of life. But when it comes to one of the great things of life, Having dinner with Meryl Streep every night for months, we try to keep it light because the day work was so unbearable. I mean, you're in a concentration camp. I mean, you just cannot escape the mood of the experience. But it was, it was a comfort to, to at least, uh, after so much heavy work, to, to have a comfort with, uh, with, with such a lovely colleague. Uh, it, it seems like it was a comfort. Oh, she was. Meryl Streep is honestly the goddess of cinema, probably the greatest actor that's ever lived. And just one of the funniest, smartest, nicest people you would ever meet. I just love her. Love, love, love her. Filming wrapped and the show aired in the States on NBC over four consecutive nights in April of 78. It was a huge success. One report from the Times says that so many people watched it in New York City that when commercials were on, the local water pressure dropped due to so many people using their toilets at once. I was walking down the street in New York and this crowd of people started running towards me and I looked around and I thought, oh, I wonder who's here. I was looking around for like Mick Jagger or Bob Dylan. Like, what? Who? And they all come running up. They go, Carl, Carl. And my character then, does Carl die tonight? Does Inga survive? And I went, oh, my God. I said, did you watch Holocaust? They watch Holocaust. Everybody's watching Holocaust. It was like this astonishing response, you know? If I am a young person in Germany, born after the war, So maybe in the mid-1970s, I'm 20-something-year-old. What do I know about 
the Holocaust. You know as much as you want to know. Act 2, Holocaust comes to Germany. This is Moshe Zimmerman, Professor Emeritus at the History Department of the Hebrew University Jerusalem. In the late 70s, he was living and studying in West Germany. There was a time in the 50s and the 60s when uh, information about the Holocaust, information about the Second World War, information about National Socialism was subdued. They had also a problem with the concept. Uh, National Socialism is a concept which was well known to everybody. Nazism, National Socialism. Uh, But uh, for the... uh, murdering of the Jews, they didn't have a real concept. So Holocaust was not in circulation, Shoah neither. So they talked usually about the things with the Jews. In the decades leading up to our story, if you cracked open a history textbook in a German school, you'd probably see that history sort of ends sometime after the First World War. The question is, of course, to what extent did they focus on the history of the uh, discrimination of the Jews, the history of what we know, the Holocaust. There, of course, it was a fragmented information that they got. In the 50s and 60s, many Germans, Zimmermann explains, took up a kind of we-were-held-hostage narrative. Like, it wasn't really us who did all those horrible things, we were taken over. This is a way uh, not to be identified with the criminals. Of course, they knew that at least the previous generation somehow involved in what happened. But there was a tendency, of course, to put most of the blame on the main culprits, that is, the Nazis, the Nazi elite, the SS, the people around Hitler, the elites of the National Socialists, in this way, evade responsibility. Sometime in the 70s, though, something started to change. In 1973, the Germans commemorated 40 years to the rise of power by the Nazis, which sparked a lot of debate in the media and academia. Biographical studies of Hitler became bestsellers. The younger Germans showed they were at least beginning to be more open to an honest reflection on the past. They had bad conscience, and they didn't know how to deal with the question. Of course, you are in a very precarious situation. You don't know whether you did the right thing or not. So they tried to circumvent the topic, to uh, evade debating it, and at the same time, of course, admitting that Germany practiced the most radical anti-Semitic policy ending up with the so-called final solution. So now we arrive at 1979, the year that Holocaust, the TV show, came to be broadcast in West Germany. Well, I was back in Germany. I was as a student and then a young uh, teacher doing most of my research in Germany, in German libraries, in German archives. So in the year 79, I was uh, back again in Germany. And uh, of course, I was aware to the fact that uh, people watch now the series Holocaust and react to it. The TV networks were hesitant about showing the miniseries. Unsure about how it will be received by the public, they started low-key, broadcasting only in the smaller regional stations. And they found out very quickly 
already after the first episode that attention is very high. And uh, they also started a kind of, a, we would call it today, a chat between the system, the uh, television system in Germany and its audience. And after broadcasting it, people started to ask questions. People calling uh, in on yeah, the telephone to yeah. the TV and station. And this was something that they took up, the system took up and tried to answer the question and explain uh, not only what happened in the film, but uh, the, the history, the real history behind, behind the film. 10,000 Germans called the broadcaster VDR after one of the episodes, many in tears, to express their shock and shame. Former soldiers got in touch to confirm the details of Nazi crimes. When the scenes of Kristallnacht were shown, Police station switchboards were flooded with confessional calls from people who had participated in the actual event, calling to confess. Many others, younger people, simply called in to ask, how did I not know about this? This was one of the questions, or they didn't put it as a question, they just put it as a statement. Well, I didn't know that, or I knew that something else, but uh, nobody told me that. And then the historian. And then, then the question was: Is really this situation that was uh, described this, this really or happened. the other episode? Is this a real one or is it an invented one? For many Germans, this was the first time that Hitler's victims appeared on their living room screen. They were humanized. They were people. It was very successful. It was effective because people showed interest without being coerced or being forced to do it. They were interested in looking at this uh, film in order to get the information that they didn't have before or they were not aware of uh, before. The show went national and sparked a national debate. Surveys show that 86% of viewers discussed the Holocaust with friends or family after watching each episode. I know from reading the newspapers or... Uh, listening to other programs on uh, German TV, that it was really one of the foci of general debate in Germany or a general uh, interest of the German viewers uh, in Germany of those days. Zimmermann says the show had a profound effect in the long term as well. Many credit it for building towards a huge national debate the Germans went through in 1986 in what was known as the Historikerstreit, At that time, several prominent historians and philosophers from the left and the right exchanged heated opinions in the German media about how to incorporate Nazism and the Holocaust into German historiography and into the German people's view of themselves. Social scientists have been studying the impact of the miniseries since then. It was not something which was only important for the moment, toward the end of 1979, but people who uh, dealt with the question of the awareness of the average German to what happened during the Second World War, is that this film was a real turning point. And this film, which was shown again and again also in other channels, this film had its effect in creating more interest in what happened and uh, creating a new awareness. Act three, so what does it all mean? For this part, we visited 
Avi Nesher, Israel's preeminent filmmaker. He made several of Israel's biggest all-time blockbusters, as well as some critical darlings. You probably saw one of his latest projects, Image of Victory, a sprawling epic drama about romance and courage during the Israeli War of Independence, recently on Netflix. Let's put it this way, if anyone can claim the honor of being the Israeli Spielberg, it's Avi Nesher. Avi, I want to start by saying uh, Mazel Tov to you. Just recently celebrated your 70th. Well, you know, you do not discuss the rope in the hangman's house. Wow. <laughs> Never heard that one before. <laughs> But there's a retrospective of your films here in, in the Cinematheque in Tel Aviv. I mean, these are exciting days for you. You're working on a film. Well, the exciting thing about the retrospective is... You know, the most, the most important thing when you're an artist of any sort is to hope that your art survives time because people think that the greatest uh, challenge an artist faces is uh, failure or success. And, and I think the greatest uh, challenge an artist faces is time because most art becomes irrelevant throughout time. The issue of time is very relevant to what we want to discuss, but I want to start for, for context. Uh, when we texted... Before we had this conversation, you told me that the topic of the Holocaust on screen, uh, Nogeabi, touches you. And uh, you were born in Israel in 1952. Uh, but how, how did the Holocaust touch your family? Well, you know, my, my parents are Holocaust survivors, as were parents of many of the kids I grew up with. And uh, like, like my friends, like my whole generation, um, we went to great trouble Uh, to ignore the Holocaust because the way we were brought up, we were supposed to be the new Jews, the brave Jews, the Jews who will not go like clamps to the slaughter. And in many ways, um, we, we sinned the greatest sin, you know, children can sin against their parents. You know, we were slightly ashamed of our parents that they did not uh, fight back. Somehow they were responsible to, for their own tragedy, which of course is ludicrous. But, um, you know, I, I never talked to my parents about their childhood. I never talked to my parents about their parents. I never talked to them about their friends. I mean, I loved my parents and my parents loved me. I mean, there was no emotional disconnect. But this topic, you know, was totally contrary to the way the leaders of early Israel tried to create this new nation. Like the best directors, Nesher is first and foremost a fan of movies, a film scholar and critic, as well as a creator himself. But when we talk about some of the portrayals of the Holocaust on the big screen, he has his reservations, let's say. You know, the early Holocaust movies were all flawed. You know, there's a movie called Capo by Gilo Pontecarvo, who's a great Italian filmmaker who made The Battle of Algiers. But it's so difficult to recreate the Holocaust because the horrors were something that no one can understand if you were not there. You know, my wildest imagination cannot really duplicate the actual horror of being, you know, part of this horrible, horrible experience. And when you see movies like Capo, you know, the extras look all wrong. The actors look like they were just recently fed, you know. I mean, it's, somehow it does not portray the true horror of the Holocaust. So I've always stayed away because I, I just, you know, these movies were movies. They were not films. They were movies. It didn't seem anything like um, documentaries. that I saw that were horrifying, you know, films that were shot, you know, uh, by Nazis themselves, films that were shot by the American soldiers who liberated, you know, the camps. These were really horror movies. 
you can see how this ambivalence bled into his own work. Nesher has written and directed films about almost all of Israel's major conflicts, wars and social changes. The Holocaust is present in many of them, but he never really shows it. He never made his capital H Holocaust movie. All these stories are told from the point of view of the second generation. And all the characters, the Holocaust survivors, are always a bit of a mystery. I can tell you that no matter what my mother has told us, I'm sure she told us, you know, maybe 20%, maybe 30%. I really, I really think that people who survived the Holocaust underwent such a journey that it cannot be really recreated with words because, you know, uh, I mean, if you really recreate it, you know, it can become almost exploitational. You know, it's, it's um, again, it's something that there's nothing in our lifetime that is even remotely similar to the experience. Like many Israeli filmmakers, Avi Nesher regularly screens his films in Germany. And that's not always been easy. My experience with Germans is split, because on one hand, I have many German friends, good friends. And on the other hand, when I'm in Berlin, in the subway, and then the announcer says, Achtung, you know, uh, I, have, I have a gut reaction. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, I'm, I'm preconditioned. I doubt that my daughter will have the same reaction and, you know, the grand-grandkids will probably not have that reaction. But, you know, for me, it's still very, very fresh. I don't think my parents ever went back to Germany. It's complicated, you know? So what about the miniseries we're discussing? Turns out, Avi Nesher, not a huge fan. But he definitely acknowledges the importance of that broadcast back in 1979. It was important in the same way that the Eichmann trial was important, because you do not want the Holocaust forgotten. You know, the tragedy is that for the Western world, World War II was over in 1945. For us, Jews, the Holocaust, you know, is still around the corner. World War II was never over. The people in Iran who have some interesting ideas about uh, how to do a repeat act of the Holocaust, you know, anti-Semitism is rising in America and everywhere else. It's present. And, and it's important to remember that it, it is something that can come back at any given point, because the reason for the existence of anti-Semitism have not disappeared. You know, they're still around. So I do not want to discuss the artistic merits of the television series, but I think politically and, and socially, the fact that the Holocaust made a comeback, so to speak, is important. The show, Holocaust, was not the first time Hollywood dealt with the horrors of that era. There was, for example, the 1959 adaptation of The Diary of Anne Frank, which screened all over the world and won three Oscars, Then there's a Sidney Lumet movie from 1964 called The Pawn Broker, about a haunted, deeply traumatized survivor who runs a shop in East Harlem after the war. Rod Steiger got an Oscar nomination for that one. But Holocaust, the miniseries, was the first that really worked, that really made an impact, especially in Germany. The big question is, why? Because this story concentrated on a family. It was something which was not complicated, It was based on uh, the uh, average American receiving information about the Holocaust, and it was compatible to what uh, the average German could accept and could understand. 
I think this combination of those elements explains why such a miracle happened in the year 79 and why this miracle uh, left its uh, effect for such a long time in Germany. This is, of course, 30-something years after the end of the war. So you have to imagine that by this time, more and more Germans were becoming open to a frank discussion. Well, you know, there comes a point when history becomes mythology. And mythology is much more potent than history because history is something that you get tested on in fifth grade and you get a B and, you know... And you leave it alone. And, and history is something that can be contested. It's historians, new historians, old historians. But mythology is, is not really accountable to anything. Mythology is just something that, that a nation adopts at some point, like the Western. You know, I mean, I, I assume life in the real West were different than John Wayne movies or Clint Eastwood movies or Gary Cooper movies. You know, so mythology is extremely important in the life of a nation. And there's no other medium as powerful and effective as creating mythology as cinema. This is the awkward situation for a historian. A historian believes that documentation is telling the story. And people have to be impressed by the documentation or convinced by the documentation. And the historian who uh, did a lot of uh, writing about the cinema, I'm aware to the fact that fiction in cinema and fiction in general is not less effective than documentary. If you look at it in uh, retrospective, some pictures, some images created in the fiction film is more effective than anything else. That's it for this episode of On the Holocaust, a podcast from Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center. My name is Jonathan Gall, sound editing and mixing by Do Komet. Tova Shimanov was our producer. Thanks to our guests, the great James Woods, Moshe Zimmerman, Professor Emeritus at the History Department of the Hebrew University, Jerusalem, and Avi Nesher, who's currently developing a new project, he tells us, that might end up being his Holocaust movie. Subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcast for more episodes with more stories you might not have heard before. Thanks for listening. Be well. <laughs>